If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, you need to go to see where Jesus walked, to know that the things we read about and talk about and pray about are found over there. Bethlehem. It's interesting how they present Bethlehem to those who come to see it. You're, you leave your hotel and you're on a bus and your tour guide will talk to you about the story of Christmas. We happened to be there last year right after Christmas. So those events and the decorations were still fresh on our minds. But they don't take you right to the church of the nativity. They build up to it. You turn a corner and you're headed down a road and you go through a checkpoint. There are always security issues there. And then when you cross through that checkpoint, then they point out the hillside. And you see the, the city of Bethlehem. I still think of it as a village. And you see the slope and the, the contour of the land where you could almost envision shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. But you still don't get there till you've wound up this road. You've gone up this road and they park the bus and you get out and you have about a four or five block walk as the guide is talking to you about that night so long ago. And then when you get to the place where the traditional side of the birth of Jesus is, it's not a stable, it's a church. It's a very old church. It has a door that you have to bend down and hunker down to get through. He tells a story of how there were attacks centuries ago, and this kept the horses from being able to get in. Uh, when the church or when the, the area was under attack in the Middle Ages. And then you're still not there because once you get inside the church in the nativity, then you have to wait in line. And you wait in line for quite a long time. But you're, you're okay with that because you're close. And then as you get very close to the place where, remember, this traditional site is not above ground, but it's actually a cave. And then you notice that there's only one way in and one way out, and you have hundreds of people that have come all this way to see this place. And so you're waiting again, and then you walk down those steps one at a time because they all lead down to this entrance to a cave. And then you make it to here, and then you see a little lady from another country who wants to cut in front of you, and you slightly go like this, so she can't. Not really. You let everybody go in front of you because it's worth the wait. And then you get to that place. Now, we don't know if that's exactly where it happened, but the buildup is what makes it significant for me. If you happen to get to go to Rome sometime, you need to go because there's that beautiful chapel called the Sistine Chapel. But you can't get to the Sistine Chapel by just walking in and looking up at the ceiling where the beautiful paintings are. You have to walk about a mile through all these other galleries. And your guide is going to be talking to you about this and that. And the whole time, you're just saying, let's get there, let's get there, let's get there. And when you finally do, you understand how it's easy to get a crick in your neck when you just stand there and just gaze. 
If you ever get to go to Florence, Italy, you need to go because there Michelangelo's, Michelangelo's famous sculpture of David is there. Most people just call it the David. But you don't just walk in to that art gallery and see it. You wait in line and then you head down one hall and your tour guide is telling you and building up and you see all the pieces of marble that have portions of that beautiful statue carved in them but they were the ones that he got so far along and then didn't like the grain of the stone and tossed it aside and so you see all these practice carvings and then you turn a corner and look down this long hallway and you see the David 18 feet high And you go and you stand and you just gaze at it. But you see, it's all about the build-up. It's all about anticipating. And that's what Luke does. That's what his Christmas story is all about. He doesn't begin with the manger. He leads up to it. He anticipates. He, He draws the reader in to the most wonderful story Ever. And that's what we want to do during these Sundays of Advent. You remember Advent means the arrival, the appearance. We've been talking in terms of doors. Last Sunday, we looked right over here at this door that represented time in the universe and how God arranged everything to be just perfect for the moment when the Christ child would be born as a baby. Emmanuel, God with us. And then the Lockwoods just lit that door up there. The clock illuminated, talking about time. And that's where Luke does his best job. That's where he does his best work. Because as we begin there in his version of the birth of Jesus, Matthew tells it from one perspective. Luke tells it from the most most familiar to many of us. We find that it's all about time. Time. The Bible uses lots of words to designate the passage of time. Many times it'll just talk about a number of days. On the third day, such and such happened. But every once in a while, in both the Old and the New Testament, there appear to be two basic words, especially in the New Testament, to designate the passage of time. One of them is familiar, chronos, chronograph. Chronos, when it's used and translated time in the Scripture, it's basically talking about just the passage of, of the day. If you could have had a clock back then or had a watch, you would have just known chronos time is just going through the hours. We're sitting here from 9.30 to 10.30 roughly or a little bit after that, and it's just the, the chronos, the chronology of what's happening. But there's another word for time, kairos. And kairos, when it's used, it's talking about significant defining moments in your life. Luke takes both of these ideas and he plays them one against the other. And we find that much of what we see in the story of Scripture is the passage of time. But, no, 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 there's much more than that. It has everything to do not with just living through the day, living through the month, living through the years, living through your life. But it's recognizing those significant defining moments in time, kairos moments. That's what I want to ask you to do as you think about that door. Remember, we're following this devotional guide 
It's a simple booklet. You can pick one up on your way out. You're not too late to participate with us. There's a chapter per week in this little guide talking about doors. And as we think about the doors representing time and how they affect the Christmas story, I think we have much to learn. So keep that in mind as we move through a couple of passages of, scriptures this, of, of Scripture this morning. This idea of chronology, time, time wasted perhaps, time spent one way or the other. And then notice those defining moments because you see... We experience both as well. We're going to look at this idea of time, first of all, through the eyes of a senior adult prophet in the first century. His name was Zechariah, or in some passages of Scripture, it's going to be Zacharias. Same guy. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 1. It's a long passage, verses 5 through 25. We're not going to read all of it. We're going to pick up in verse 13. But when we talk about this man, just want to give you a little background. He had a wife named Elizabeth, and they were senior adults. We don't know exactly what that age means. Certainly not as old as I am because I'm not a senior adult. Okay. But he was elderly, and he was a priest. And the Bible tells us that there came a moment where Zacharias' number came up. He was on a rotation. See, when we think of priesthood and priest in the New Testament or even the Old Testament, we have this idea that it may need to be changed or altered because the high priest, the, the leading priest, lived in Jerusalem, in the temple grounds. But the rest of them lived out in the country. They lived outside of town. And Zechariah was one of those who did his time in his local village where he lived. He instructed, he taught. But then every once in a while, his number would be picked, and they had a rotation to where he was due to come to Jerusalem to offer incense in the temple, to the the inner part of the temple where only priests could go. This particular time came for Zechariah, and he showed up, and he went into the place where he was to offer this incense as a prayer to God. It was just the presence of God and Zechariah, as far as we can tell. And when he went into that place, he had done it countless times before. He's an old man. It's just part of time, the chronology of his life. He's faithful. He obeys the law. His wife is faithful. And they live with this nagging issue that they didn't have children. See, back in that day and time, you couldn't bear children. You were ridiculed. I mean, you were, you were in a bad place, just the way it was. And so all this time in being faithful to God and obeying the law, in the bottom of their hearts, they yearned for offspring. They yearned for a child. And in that background or with that context, the angel of the Lord speaks to Zechariah. And we pick it up in Luke chapter 1 verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn away many of the sons of Israel. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. 
It is he who will go as a forerunner before him who before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered, said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe the words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Okay, now, let's think a minute. It's a long passage. It's even longer to really put it in its context. But hopefully you've got the idea that this elderly priest experienced not just time, but a moment, a defining moment in his life. You see, this is part of Luke's way to ramp up and build up to the main event, which is the birth of Jesus. Remember, he's not going to just start with that. He's just not going to start with Jesus was born, God with us, Emmanuel. Glory be to God. No. He begins the anticipation. He begins to tell the backstory. He begins to talk about all those components that are going to be part of the life of Jesus. And one of them was this man, this prophet named John. We know him as John the Baptist, the forerunner. Gabriel painted all the picture, the background of the Old Testament prophet, Elijah, and how this man John would come forth and he would would be a force to be reckoned with. But his whole intention in life would be to point others toward the one who would come after, the Savior. So time for Zechariah was he did his duty, just like you do. He showed up for work. He obeyed the law, paid his tithes. He always told the truth. But the defining moment, the kairos moment, was when he was given the promise of that longed-for child. Now, he asked for a sign. So do we. And in Zechariah's case, the sign he was given was a form of punishment. Mute for nine months. Can you imagine this man who had been longing for this child all this time, having a direct revelation from God through the angel Gabriel, and that he came out from that innermost part of the temple, and everyone was waiting to see what he had to say, and all he could do was play charades. How do you communicate? With your arms and your legs. And, well, I know what you do. It's three syllables. First syllable sounds like. He had to do that for nine months. A defining moment. And I would imagine, because we have to read into the text to know too much more, but I would imagine that in those nine months, Zechariah learned much. Because it wasn't just time. It was a defining moment in his life. And when that child was born, and they were wondering what his name would be, and the name was to be John, 
And they asked Zechariah, and when he was able to speak it, say it, communicate it, his voice came back to him. And I imagine from that point on, he didn't just look at time, but he looked for those defining moments that God would bring in his way, and we should as well. Now, you can look through the Scripture, and you're going to remember some stories of people where you can apply this idea of time and a defining moment in their life. Think about Moses, for instance. Now, just time in his life you can find all over the book of Exodus, but it's Exodus chapters 3 and 4 that I want to ask you to focus on for a moment. This is that place where Moses confronted the presence of God, or rather yet, God drew Moses into his presence in the form of a burning bush where Moses had to kick off his shoes, you remember. And they had this long, drawn-out conversation. There's been lots of, of sermons about it, lots of songs about it. But basically, for Moses, it was just time until it turned into a defining moment when at that burning bush, Moses had to make a decision. And it was hard for him to make the right choice, if you remember. He made all kinds of excuses. God said, I want you to go back and free my people. And he began with excuse number one. I'm a wanted man. Another excuse. Who are you? If people ask, who sent me? Who do I tell them? God gave him his name, you remember. And then finally it says that Moses said, hey, just know that I've got a speech impediment. And I can't talk right. Get someone else to do the job. And that's when it says in Exodus 4 that God's anger burned against Moses. Go read it for yourself. And then Moses faced a defining Kairos moment in his life where he had to make a choice. And this man who started out so well and then stumbled for years got back on the right path. You can say the same thing about the Apostle Paul. There's all kinds of stories about time in the life of Paul. I mean, just chronos time. He did this. He did that. But there's a defining moment in Paul's life when he was blinded by the very presence and the light of Christ on the road to Damascus. Remember that. You can find it in Acts chapter 9. But I'm asking you to look at the difference here. Look at what's going on. There's chronos. There's just time. There's just choices. There's just living life. But then there's that moment. There's that defining moment. There's that time when God says, I'm breaking into your life in a way you've never experienced before. And I'm asking for your obedience. This is an opportunity for you to make a life-changing, time-based decision. And that defining moment for Paul caused him to be blind, not for nine months, for a matter of days. There's a woman in the Old Testament. She goes by the name of Esther. There's an Old Testament book with her name on it. Esther represents those who lived during the time when the Jews were allowed to return home after the exile. This is after Babylon, during the time of the Persian Empire. But there were a whole lot of Jews who didn't want to go back to Israel, if you remember. They didn't want to follow Zerubbabel and Jeremiah and all these other people going back. And they had no desire. They lived in this area that had been theirs for generations. This land of exile was just fine with them. And 
Esther lived during that time when those people, those Jews who chose not to return, faced a lot of critical decisions. And she faced not just decisions day in and day out, but a defining moment where it was on her shoulders because of her position and her influence to make a choice. I don't know if you remember that that line in that book where her cousin, what was his name, Mordecai, said, Esther, for such a time as this, you're here. See, it's the, it's the complete contrast between time, life, chronos, the watch, and kairos, a defining moment in one's life. I mean, where can you see it? but in the life of Joseph and Mary. You know, you got time in their life. Luke spends a little bit of time just talking about, hey, two young people in love, going through the marriage countdown class of their day, if you will, taking pains to do everything right, and then all of a sudden, what's thrust upon Joseph and Mary? Not just chronos, not just decisions of what to do today and what to do tomorrow, how to plan for this, how to plan for that, but a defining moment. You see it from both perspectives. The same message that was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth about the birth of a child is delivered later to Mary about her conceiving a child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph having to face the embarrassment of of a fiancé who was expecting a child that was certainly not his. And all those decisions they had to make boil down, not to just chronology, not to just day-in and day-out decisions, but defining moments. And for them, that defining moment, that moment in time that was so important, was their raising and caring for the very Son of God. Which brings us all the way back full circle to the elderly couple who were promised that child. You know, you can't read Zechariah and Elizabeth's story without thinking about Abraham and Sarah. The children born to Jacob. All those who, who were going through life, going through the chronology of time, Faithful, good folks, but then all of a sudden put in a position to where the decision they had to make was not just time, but a defining moment. So we zip forward in Scripture. This child that was promised to Zacharias and Elizabeth was born, John, John the baptizer. We don't know too much else about him. The next time we hear from him after his birth is he's wandering around the sea where the Sea of Galilee dumps into the Dead Sea, the southern part of Israel. He's baptizing people. He is truly a prophet. He's thrown in prison. He spoke the wrong words to Herod Antipas, who was a puppet king, but nevertheless had the power to take life and to spare it. And we find in Luke chapter 7 that this moment in John the Baptist's life turned very, very significant very quickly. 
It's there in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 19, where John, from his prison cell, sends two of his friends to find Jesus. He's got a burning question to ask. It says there, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time. Now, pause there for a moment. Neither kairos nor chronos are used there. It's a unique word. It means at that very hour. At the very moment that John's question comes to Jesus, at the very moment that that question is coming in, have I wasted my time? Have I wasted my life being a forerunner for the wrong person? And it says at that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards cleanse, deaf hear, dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. But then I want you to listen to what Jesus then said. It's not on the screen. I want you just to look this way and listen. When the messengers of John had left, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What's going on here? I got a penny in my pocket. I know, big deal. (laughs) It's a penny. It's a shiny penny. I look at it and it says, in God we trust, it says liberty. And then there's there's a, a person's, it's Abraham Lincoln. He's right there. You turn over on the back. There's the building. What's that building? What's the building? It's right there. (laughs) Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial. It's one of those buildings that represents our country. And then there's a Latin phrase, a pluribus unum. means out of many came one. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you can't read, you can't write, you don't have magazines, you don't have TV, you don't have an iPhone. All you've got or coins. That's all you see. That's all you can, that's all you've got hold of to, to find out anything about the world in which you live. That's what it was like in the first century. And for the typical Jew, he carried around a bag of coins that would be a mix from different places, but one of them came from Herod Antipas. You know what he embossed on his coins besides his image? A reed. That plant that would be waving in the fields near the Sea of Galilee that represented uh, fertility, that represented the rich crops. What did Jesus say? He said, hey, what did you people come looking for? Did you come looking for a reed shaking in the wind? 
Did you come looking for someone dressed in splendid clothes who came out of a royal palace? If you did, you were looking for the wrong thing. You're doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And the right thing at the right time is to realize that what you should have been looking for was exactly what John is, a prophet. You see, these people who only look to images to find out what was real in their lives... That's all they could do. That's all they can imagine. And so when they're looking for a Messiah, when they're looking for someone coming from God, they just look in their pocket and pull out the coins. And surely that's the kind of person they're looking for. And Jesus says, of everyone born of a woman, if I've got it right, that's pretty much everybody. There's no one greater than John. You see, time in John's life Yeah, he had to grow up. No, we don't know everything about him. He came from a very, very strange background, though. Most likely, people think he spent a lot of time with a a group that stayed in seclusion called the Essenes. And there, he had that physical presence of someone who lived off the land and worked out a lot. Someone who wore strange clothing. Someone who ate locusts and honey. Someone who came forward talking about the kingdom of God. Someone who, in a defining moment of his life, behind a prison bar, asked a legitimate question. Are you the expected one? And I think when Jesus gave his answer back to John, John smiled. Then John began to realize that everything he had been brought up to do He was doing. And that every time he had an opportunity, and you can't help but think that the guy at some point in his life realized, I've got all these hundreds of followers coming after me. They're following me. I could stand up here and say, I'm the one. But instead, John always pointed where Jesus was and said, don't follow me. Go over there. I'm not worthy to untie the lace of the sandal. And yet he wanted me to baptize him. Go follow him. That's what this time of Advent and Christmas is all about. It's about all of creation preparing for the Messiah. It's about time. It's about time in your life and in mine. And don't ever forget... God still uses ordinary folks like you and me and gives us an opportunity to have a kairos, a defining moment. What would it be for you? What is God giving to you this Advent season? What is he saying to you through his word, through music, through others? What is it? Is it opportunities to serve? Is it opportunities to give? Is it an opportunity for you to make a stand? Is it an opportunity for you to change the course of your life and do something you never had the courage to do, but now you understand that these defining moments can never be overlooked? I'm out of time. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity. The opportunity to catch a glimpse of who you are, how you work. 
Father, I'm thankful for ordinary people in Scripture, people who are honest, people who pay their taxes, people who do their duty. And I'm also thankful that those same people, when presented with defining moments, chose you. I pray that for my own life. I pray that for the life of every person who comes our way this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We wrap up this hour just like we always do. God speaks. We have an opportunity to respond. And so that time of response is now. How would you respond to what God has said to us today? Well, there's one of several ways. We offer this time of invitation for people who need to give their life to Jesus for the first time. Become Christians. Get saved. Cross the line of faith. It's described in many different ways. But basically to me, it's a choice. It's a communication of understanding and knowing that this baby born in a manger, God with us, grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man and went to a cross and died that we might live. And so we accept his authority over our life and his lordship over our lives. It's a choice. You may be confused about that. That's all right. There'll be ministers and deacons standing here that can pray with you and help you. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord. Just never followed him like one did at the top of this service, just like Gail Moore did. Gladly identifying through believer's baptism that she belongs to Christ. If that's something you've yet to experience, let's talk about it. Come forward. Maybe you're here today and you need a church to call your own, place to belong. We always like to think of our church as one where all are welcome. So if the idea of community, the idea of joining up, something that you want to talk about, that's how you join a church like ours. You come forward. But then for many of us, it's about this. You're already a little bit hacked at me because you got things to do today. Well, I'll just tell you, go ahead and be mad. Because it's more than this, and we know that. It's those defining moments. And maybe you've been putting it off. Maybe you know what it is for you. And now, this day, you're ready to walk through that door and obey. Maybe you just need prayer today. Ray and Sandy, lawn up in the balcony, three folks in our church who would just love to be able to pray with you if that's the desire of your heart. So there it is. Now's the time. Let's not waste it. We stand together, we sing as you respond as God leads.